Hello and welcome to the IC Companies and Markets podcast. I'm Mark Robinson, filling in for John Human, who is off writing an academic paper at the moment. But I'm joined here by in the August company of uh, Bradley Gerard, our news editor, our uh, associate editor, Algie Hall. Hello. Hello there. And uh, also by digital editor, Graham Davies, who's also filling in in the recording booth, our, our very own Phil Spector. Good day, Mark. So, uh, as ever, I think we'll move on to the the news section first. I mean, it's been a, an interesting week on a, on a couple of accounts there. The first thing we'll bring up, Bradley, is uh, the RBS story. Uh, to no one's great surprise, uh, failing that stress test. RBS is the bank that's you know, vastly majority owned by the taxpayer, so we've all have effectively got a vested interest in it kind of doing better. Yes, it did technically fail this stress test, but um, what's actually happened, so the, the test was done up until the end of December, but since then, um, RBS has actually been able to issue some extra, um, what is known as additional tier one um, securities, and it is, is those types of securities which contribute to the um, core capital ratio that the Bank of England is testing. So it does show at least that, yes, on the at the, at the end of December last year, it did fail, Subsequent to that, it has done something which just inches it over the pass line, albeit marginally. But I guess, I mean, you know, RBS is a stock that demands an awful lot of patience if you're an investor in it. But listen to some of the commentary last night, and I mean, I think it's it's capital ratio around the time of the crisis was about 1%, whereas now it's near a 7%. So yeah. there has been a lot of repair, you know, a lot of repair has been done to the bank. Um, but there are still a lot of problems with it. And one of the biggest ones is, is obviously a potential litigation in the US, which I was reading before I came down, some analysts are forecasting could be in the $12 billion region. Mm. So, you know, while there are, uh, we're trying to paint a balanced picture here, but that is a huge um, potential issue for the bank. Well, the odd thing about it as well, it's it's uh, not the only banking story at the moment, not the only negative banking story at the moment with uh, the referendum coming up in Italy shortly, which may lead to the exposure of uh, Italy's uh, banking sector again, and uh, indirectly the exposure through to some of the Germany's big banks who, uh, who are interlinked. Um, so, I mean... This might look like a small beer very soon. The test that the Bank of England put the banks under was pretty extreme. I mean, obviously, it can't cover every potential base of something that might happen. But um, one would hope that if there is a really big problem from the Italian referendum and that causes a few dominoes to fall over, hopefully what this test shows is that to a certain degree, our banks will be able to tolerate that. Of course, if dominoes keep falling, we have a massive global recession, then that's something else entirely. In, in, interesting with Italy's banks, though, I mean, there's the argument that they could be used to turn the screw if the referendum sees Renzi ousted, as um, I think probably as most people are thinking it will. Um, and, Assuming and he steps down, of course. Well, indeed. Mm. Um, but the the fact that those banks need support is a way of potentially holding the monetary union together if there are these populist parties coming in well, all over the place. Well, it's a bit left field, but um, I, I know. But in, in, from instability comes stability. Well, I think that the sector is slightly larger than Greece's, Greece's banking sector. So I mean, they're, they're in 
lies the rub, you know. Everyone I mean, needs it to hold together. Will the ECB support it? This is this is the question. I mean, it, it may no, it may not come to this, but I mean, they're in a fairly powerless state. I think the big difference as well with Italy is is that a lot of individuals in the population are heavily invested in the banks via bank debt and bank bonds, whereas that's slightly different to the UK, where it's largely. I mean, effectively, there's always an exposure if you've got you know, a, a pension. You're probably invested in banks, probably through those, but there's not quite that such high level of direct investment in sort of bank debt here in the UK. Is it worth mentioning at this point, Lloyd's, which have come, has come out of the stress test quite well and is a tip of the year for 2016. Still time to come good there, maybe? Yes, nicely done. Nicely done. They've got about three weeks. <laughs> They've got about three weeks. It's a long shot, but maybe. I mean, the systemic risk is, of course, uh, when you look at uh, Commerce Bank and, and Deutsche, who have had their own uh, problems uh, throughout this year. Uh, and and their exposure, but I guess it's it's all conjecture at this stage, uh, and it'll all come out in the wash. Interestingly enough, our uh, banking correspondent Emma Powell uh, will be covering um, the the issue of stress tests in an upcoming feature, and she'll be looking at uh, what constitutes uh, an effective stress test for a bank, and taking account the views of uh, academics and uh, manage money in London. So that's one to look forward to. Uh, I guess one of the other big news stories that's just come out over the last 24 hours was uh, the agreement with uh, OPEC uh, to uh, uh, cut, or Saudi Arabia rather, to cut uh, production along with uh, Russia, one of the other big uh, producers in the cartel. Um, we, we didn't exactly see this coming, but we were, this time last year, I just dug out an old article that I'd written and uh, it was they were going through pretty much the same motions. They were talking about uh, uh, a concerted effort then on behalf of OPEC and the stumblebuck being that um, uh, some of the junior members uh, weren't willing to, willing to take uh, cuts. But it now looks like there's some agreement. And amazingly, Iran as well is, is coming, to the, uh, coming to the party. Have you got any uh, comments on that, Bradley? You point to the fact that we, you know, we wrote an article last year, and at, at that point we were saying there were suggestions that OPEC would do something. It just shows how glacially slow this body actually moves. Not that there's so much self-interest there, because they, they, a lot of those economies need to pump oil to well, holding reliant on it. I mean, the, the interesting part is we don't know the level of um, spare capacity with Saudi Arabia at the moment. They're the only one of the. Uh, cartel members at the moment that does have spare capacity uh, we're not quite sure what that is it must be it must be narrowing as demand increases but you've got a situation at the moment where the effective swing producer in the market uh, is the unconventional producers in the U- united states and uh, and canada to a lesser extent and um they can the theory runs that they can go in and come out of the market in fairly rapid succession. Uh, a lot of the conventional production has been taken out or um, mothballed. Uh, so I guess in a, in a way, um, interestingly, we've got an article coming out in the next couple of weeks in the, in, the, in the magazine written by Alex Newman, who is looking at the potential for an oil spike when supply and demand fall into equilibrium. He's he's making the, the the conjecture, I guess, that once that happens, you, we we could see a, a, quite a rapid rise in the oil price because a lot of that unconve- uh, conventional production has been taken out, and it's nothing. It's, it's not you can't sort of reinstate this overnight. I guess also um, a rise in oil prices um, could be good for for transport stocks because I mean, if, if any UK based businesses who have 
um, US exposure, you know, a lot of the bus company or bus and rail companies here do, um, higher oil prices would be actually good for them because the low oil prices encourages drivers in the US to, to use their cars rather than use public transport. And obviously, often the transport groups are quite well hedged, so they can kind of mitigate um, price uh, fuel price rises. So th- there could be um, a positive for investors there if oil does rise. From my from my perspective, the patch that I cover. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, Brent crude did bubble up uh, on this news as well, but there's um, it's far from being a done deal. There's compliance issues here as well. We there's um, there's a school of thought that suggests that uh, Iran has been understating its production uh, in the lead up. Um, I mean, there was a lot of uh, illegal um, or, or, or production that was moving out of the country against the sanctions that were in place. That oil is still in, in situ, and they're building up, and, they're, and they've given an upper limit where they're going to stop. Um, but you know, whether or not whether or not some of the Russia, for instance, complies with, with the state of the agreement, we don't know yet. I mean, it's it's a fairly fractious uh, relationship amongst uh, certain members of the cartel. Um, so, you know, we, th- this doesn't in itself necessarily herald a, a, a return to, you know, $60 a barrel oil prices. I mean, and of course, the, 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 what, I- what is an equitable oil price at the moment, which will allow companies to, the big majors, to generate free cash flow and also fund their um, their ongoing uh, CapEx commitments? We don't know, but we it's certainly in excess of $52 a barrel, so uh, it's one to watch anyway. Well, talking about inflationary pressures, uh, Bradley, I believe that you've been looking at uh, one of your companies this week, Whitbread this time around. Yeah, it announced a £150 million to the cost-cutting drive over the next five years. And um, this is really aimed at, you know, sort of tackling the uh, the rising costs, you know, the inflation that consumer-facing businesses are facing right now. So there's the there's been the business rates review, so business rates are set to rise in 2017. Um We've also got the national living wage is obviously pushing up um, wages for people aged 25 and over and the the minimum wage for people below that age is also rising as it does anyway. Um, And then you've got sort of potential, um, you know, raw material inflation. So if uh, UK companies are buying any, say, food or whatever from from Europe, um, they're having a bit of an FX uh, foreign exchange hit there as well. So um, on the beat that I cover, which is very much consumer facing, you are kind of seeing a lot of mention of these um, these issues that these companies are facing, so it's um, it's interesting that Whitbread's, um, you know, I mean, 150 million cost-cutting drive is is quite a large number. So they're they're obviously seeing these uh, these is- the issues that I just mentioned as quite significant. Okay, Bradley. One of the other stories that's uh, made it into the news this week, written by uh, Theron Muhammad, uh, links to uh, BT and Ofcom. What's been going on there? Yeah, they've been in a bit of a, a well a long discussion, put it that way, um, because. OpenReach basically um, is a company that is you know, is part of BT, and it provides the the infrastructure that a lot of other companies rely on to provide broadband to their customers. Um, and there's been a lot of um, sort of a, a lot of claims by those rivals suggesting that you know BT isn't investing enough in OpenReach. And then if you're a, a provider like Sky or Vodafone or TalkTalk. You're kind of hobbled, really, because if you get customers complaining about you know the um, time in which it takes to connect you or any other issues like that, often it's down to open reach. So you've kind of got little control over your own destiny where that is, um, if that's an issue. And actually, Theron himself says, you know, he 
he was a, a Sky Broadband customer and he's actually left that because of the poor experience that he's had. But that's through open reach, so it's not really Sky's fault, it's more an open reach issue. We well, love a bit of scuttlebutt. Exactly, yeah. So um the the, the big issue is is that the um so Ofcom has suggested it wants to make um open reach a separate legal entity within BT. It does still have to go to European regulators, slightly ironically in the post Brexit vote world we're living in um, to, to do that but um, it's what's probably likely to happen is what they've suggested I, I guess is that it will, it will be se- legally separate but it will remain part of BT because there's also a big problem that if you completely remove it from BT that company is very well known for having an exceptionally large pension um, deficit and obviously some of um, BT's workers a large proportion are open reach workers so yeah. to, to, to untangle the, the pension thing would be a problem anyway Um and also, it would be a big step for a regulator to sort of forcibly remove part of one company and make it into a um, an independent one uh, in the in the telecoms industry, anyway. Um, so yeah, it's, yeah, there are precedents in other industries. I say yeah, there are. In other, that's why I stress the telecoms industry. There are precedents in other in other areas, but I don't think it's really happened on UK soil where where telecoms are concerned. Um, I mean, BT has made overtures to the regulator to try and appease it. So it's said it's going to spend six billion pounds to upgrade the network. Um, it's hired the former Ofcom chief executive Mike McTeague as its um, as OpenReach's independent chairman. So BT is obviously very well aware of um, the risk of um, you know OpenReach being ripped away from it. So it is trying to kind of meet the regulator what it sees halfway. Um, but yeah, I mean it, this isn't done and dusted. Ofcom has a desire. Um, there's there's every sort of reason to believe that desire will happen. But um, yeah, it's not not done and dusted yet. But it's maybe a suggestion of how things will turn out. Okay, then. Uh, in the news spotlight this week, uh, it was actually, I've, I've had a look at uh, the recent decision by India's government to uh, cancel a couple of their high denomination 500 and 1,000 rupee notes and the implications that that could have uh, for gold prices. Uh, the Indian government have taken this uh, decision to stop uh, flows of uh, so-called black money uh, leaving the economy. That's money that uh, has been earned in the underground in India and no taxes are paid on it, of course, and it's uh, nestled away into uh, bank accounts, probably in London, no doubt, but uh, also in uh, Geneva and Zurich. The Indian government, uh, it was, this is a structural uh, problem for the economy, uh, the numbers that we're talking about here, because uh, that money doesn't is, is never repatriated to India, or, or decades later, at any rate, and it's, uh, it's, a, it's a drag on uh, aggregate demand in the country. So it's... Um, it's interesting they've been trying to do this, and uh, it, it's also linked to the the problems they've been having with their uh, uh, well, sort of a, a persistent problem they've had with their current account deficit as well, because uh, the two big drivers of that current account deficit have been gold imports and, of course, energy imports as well. It's narrowed appreciably over the last couple of years because uh, India hasn't been paying as much for its uh, petroleum imports, uh, but the government doesn't want that that getting out of hand again because what happened when they when they uh, effectively took these notes out of circulation and it happened overnight as well a lot of the people that were uh, putting these black, black so-called black money um, abroad through these high denomination notes just went into gold so um, you know we, we saw a little bit of a spike in the gold price it's since settled down but uh, 
The, there is some speculation now that uh, the Indian government could implement, implement a, a full um, import ban on gold, uh, which would have um, you know, drastic, fairly drastic uh, implications uh, for the, the spot price. I guess maybe it might actually need to if oil prices rise, because if a large part of its current account deficit is because of imports of that commodity, yep. might actually be more compelled to possibly do what you just said with gold. Well, that's right. I mean, uh, the the problem being is with India as uh, foreign reserves, but they're, but they're not the, the same sort of um, dimension as those in China or Russia because they, they can only fund that deficit for a limited period of time. Um, and inward investment is, uh, is, is relatively low in India given the size of the economy. It could do, be doing a lot better on that regard. Um, and th- th- there's a there's a fundamental problem as well is that the majority of people in India still don't have a bank account. So um, where do they store their w- the wealth? They store it in gold. They store well, it around well, their neck. Although the type of people who don't have a bank account aren't aren't the type of people that you'd be worried about from a cons- corruption point. No, of because they won't so. have big notes. I no. mean, the, the the academic theory behind this move is really interesting. It's been around for ages and. To the, to the point that people have seen in America, people by the border who may be in areas where there's a lot of drug traffic, trafficking, the demand for big notes says massive compared to elsewhere. Well, there used to be a 500 euro note which was pulled from circulation. Yeah, no, I mean it's it's a real you know it's a real mechanism for um, corrupt practices and avoiding tax. And um, obviously, India has um, has has a real problem um, in these kind of issues. So it, I mean it, it's. It'll be very interesting to see what happens economically and how it develops the economy there. And, yeah, you are right, of course. Role. I mean, the, the people that the people that are buying gold as a store of value are generally low income, uh, and, and it is, uh, and they don't. But the I mean, they have they don't have any access to um, paper products or to or to bank accounts. Uh, so that's, that's their only avenue. Yeah, I mean, and, but I mean, hold, holding gold is. Um, I mean, just the the physicality of it, I suppose, mm. is. Um, yeah, so it, you know, it's far easier to hold a very high denomination banknote, and it's very hard to hold a lot of money in very low denomination bank banknotes. And the same would go for gold because of yeah. its weight. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I mean, you'd have, you'd have to stack a few a few suitcases <laughs> full of low denomination yeah. notes to make the uh, the, the same sort be, of journey yeah. abroad. You've probably got some diamonds <laughs> sold into your lapels, right? I know. <laughs> just just in case. <laughs> okay then. Well, I guess we'll um, move along now to this week's results. We've um, it's been a, actually a surprisingly busy period at the moment because of a lot of September year ends and half years uh, coming in, and so we've uh, most of the writers have been feverishly working away at this. Um, come to you again, Bradley. Um, might have a look at uh, one or two of your results that you've covered this week. What what what, what was particularly interesting in your patch? Yeah, I guess, I mean, <clears throat> something that I uh, tipped a little while ago, and it ha- hadn't done brilliantly well since I tipped it, but there's there's um, some good news on the horizon, thankfully, and this is uh, Thomas Cook, the um, the tour operator. It's returned to the dividend roster um, after suspending payouts in 2011. So it really does show that um, an awful lot of work has been put into this business to try and get it back on, you know, sort of level level footing, so to speak. A positive aspect of the business now is that it's um, selling more of its own brand holidays and they're much higher margins. So um, it's invested in sort of its own hotels a bit more, that sort of thing. And that's really helping. Um, obviously, you know, terrorism has been an issue um, for it, as it has with other um, airlines and tour operators. But um, yeah, I think it's just it's, it's obviously very encouraging to see a company start to pay a dividend again. 
uh, it's obviously a very difficult decision to remove a dividend. So one would one would hope and presume that now it's paying money out to shareholders again. It believes it can do this in a sustainable did the, way. Uh, did the share price retrace at all? Should yeah, it had a good day on results day. Actually, mm-hmm. it did. So yeah, it's um, it's uh, positive for our for our tip at last. Actually, I covered uh, Hog Robinson through the week. There, uh, we had we've had that sell for a while now because we were a little bit concerned about the the volume of trade that was going online with the company. And now it's higher margin, yet uh, the, the top line suffers as well. And it was a, a decent set of results this week. And you know, you've got to take your your hat off to to management there. But uh, Algie, you you you've looked at Hog Robinson or that sector as well, and. Well, I think you made you made the point as well that with a lot of these companies, you know, it's it's not just a question of them trying to expand uh, market share. It's, it's holding on to market share is the problem. Yeah, no, I mean it, it can be. I mean, I you know the travel companies. I am um, as Bradley knows also in tip meetings. I I, I don't um, really like you know like them very much. They're very uncertain businesses affected by loads of external factors. Yeah. You know, just kind of low quality earnings and a lot of um, you know working capital requirements and things like that to fund next season's holidays or what have you. Hog Robinson's a bit different, uh, but we were talking about Hog Robinson. One of the interesting things is that massive pension deficit. Yes, indeed. and the rise in um, long term bond yields because while people have been seeing those pension deficits for quite a long time is a real problem because they keep on getting bigger and bigger as bond yields fall. Yep. If we really are looking at a sustained reversal in the trend for yields, then those. Uh, deficits start to shrink. And we, for a company with a massive deficit like Hob Robinson, you'd we, think that we play made well. The, we made the point, though, we don't know if that's, you know, theoretically, you'd think it would be priced into the, into the, into the shares. Um, well, yeah. However, most of the, all but, I was told this week when I was speaking to the chief executive that all but 19% of um, the shares in issue are, are tightly held. The other 19% is the retail invest, investors out there, our readers, for instance, and they're the, the ones that tend to move the share price. Now, I don't know if, if, our, if our readers would have priced that well, in. I mean, it's a hard thing to price in any way because, I mean, you're looking at triannual reviews, which determine how, um, unless something goes really wrong, that, that's what essentially determines and, and how look, much is being paid And you're looking at a 40-year liability as well. Yes. Yeah, so, yeah. I mean, people aren't going to move um, in seconds to, um, you know, reprice a stock on the basis of changes in, you know, what those assumptions underlying that deficit are. But um, you'd think over in, if, if we do have a tread now, which which establishes itself further over the coming year, um, it may just be that all that um, scaremongering around deficits we saw earlier in the year, and, and you know, a lot of them are, do look very frightening now, the size of them, um, that may start to ease and people may start to see it as a, you know, almost as a kind of contrarian positive um, to buy a company with a shrinking deficit. Well, that's it. I mean, it's it's probably the last nail in the coffin for occupational uh, pension schemes. I would have thought. You know. Anyway, we'll just move on to another announce, uh, another result here, rather for uh, Pennon, which uh, the utility that uh, Bradley you covered earlier on this week. I did. Yeah, I don't ordinarily cover utilities, but I thought um, I, I'd better sort of talk about one that was outside of my patch because I normally tend to stick to that area on the podcast. So um, Pennon, yes, it's um, the owner of things like Southwest Water and uh, waste management company Virador as well. It had a few sort of uh, newsy announcements in its results, actually. So it's um, going to invest in a new energy recovery facility in Avonmouth. What's quite interesting about this one is that they've actually already pretty much agreed contracts equal to about 50% of the capacity of the factory. And when I 
spoke to the CFO, uh, Susan Davy. She said actually in all of their other um, energy recovery facilities, of which there are 11, it has ascertained uh, sort of through some research that there is demand, but it's not actually secured it before. So it's very interesting. They've actually got nearly half the capacity sort of ca- claimed already, and they haven't even started building the thing yet. So that's obviously a really good thing for the company. And also they've launched a new uh, a new venture um, between the Pen and Water Services, which is its non-household division, and um, South Staffordshire and Cambridge Water, and that will basically sort of look to target the sort of the, the business market, basically. Which um, next year will have the benefit of being able to choose its water supplier. So unlike uh, as a retail customer, like a, a household customer, you know you, you just have to pay your water bill to whoever gives you the water. But next year, businesses are going to actually be able to sort of choose who they get their water from, um, and so that's obviously going to be a key a key market for companies so this is why obviously Pennant's focusing on making sure it's in a good place to um you know start hoovering up some business from that market as quickly as it can okay that's interesting as well there's there's quite a number of interesting results current this week uh there's others, a couple of reading that United Utilities comes to mind I think Emma Powell's taking a look at them and Jonas Crossland is uh Look to the prospects for uh, Shaftesbury at the moment. Uh, we'll move on now to Algernon Hall and his stock screen for this week. Uh-huh. Well, it's, not, it's not just for this week. We're looking looking forward to 2017. Well, yeah. And... Uh, and what have you found out? Where are we going? Well, what I found out is um, <laughs> this is um, I've, I've looked at sectors this week. Basically, I've taken it. It's, it's, a, it's a fairly simplistic approach, but um, just looking at two of the major um, factors which drive um, sh- share prices: value as measured by the dividend yield yep. and momentum based on the three-month share price performance or sector mm-hmm. performance. Also, you know, it's, it's, it's particularly interesting for um, to look at this at the moment because we're thinking about our tips for the year for next year and just trying to pick out um, spots. Well, we had our, the, we, the we meeting had yesterday, lengthy, didn't we? The two-hour meeting. I'm still recovering from yep, it. Yeah, me too. Goodness. I was, yeah, back home having to cook dinner, put the baby to bed. I know. Clear up. Turn the screw oh on, your, on your colleagues. I, I was I was dead. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I know after all that screw turning. So what I've done is to just see what sectors are looking attractive on on these um, measures, and um, I've essentially come up with three themes, or the screen I should say mm-hmm. has come up with three um, themes. You know, and one one looks like resources. Um, uh, so. Oil and gas, as we were talking about earlier, this was actually before the OPEC meeting. This, okay. um, this screen was run, so um, but it, but just that momentum and the value that seems to be there with the dividend, yeah. and companies servicing those um, oil companies, the uh, equipment and oil equipment and services companies also. Well, well they tend to be the outliers, out. don't they? They'll turn around before the oil companies themselves. Well, yeah, they do. when when the spending comes through, and the market anticipates those companies ben- yeah. benefiting, so they mark the shares up. They 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 look very expensive normally at the at that at that point, but then the earnings come in, they and come every, everyone gets yeah. more excited. You get the upgrades. You know that that's the general story that you'd be looking for. Yeah, and then also the miners come up in this screen, and also the industrial engineers, who a lot of who do who service the mining companies. So. 
that that looks interesting. That obviously kind of touches on what we've been talking about in the podcast already with that OPEC meeting and the fact that there could be an oil spike and that there could be lots of companies suddenly trying to ration it to increase production very quickly and perhaps, you know, struggling. And we, and we don't really know what a Trump administration is going to mean for uh, US borrowing and um, uh, and a stimulus package for based around infrastructure spending. I mean, the, yeah. the, the US infrastructure is creaking a little bit like, a, probably worse than our own, but... Uh, um, he, he seems fairly committed that he's going to take a, a sort of a, a neo-Keynesian a, a approach to this and try and uh, spend their way yeah. out of uh, a well, gloom. One, one, of the, one of the companies, when I was kind of checking these sectors, because one, one of the things you get with, when, you, when you look at sectors, often you find um, the classification of sectors, and you're looking actually at one company rather than a sector, like Auto and Parts is GKN. Yes, of course. Forestry and Paper, paper is Mondi. Uh-huh. It's kind of, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, look at the industrial engineer engineering sector the hill and smith has been doing stormingly there and that's got a lot of exposure to that infrastructure yeah um and and a lot of the others in there uh, likewise um so what else financials are looking um look very good and um i mean we 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 talked about all the uncertainty about the banks i think the last two times i've been on the podcast which is only occasionally um i've I've ended up talking about banks kind of almost being a defender of them but um just advancing the line that they're so bad at the moment, they're good. All we need is a tiny bit of good news for these kind of repulsive um, corporate creatures to suddenly look, oh my goodness, you know, there's something vaguely attractive about them. Let's bid them up. And we've kind of had that with, um, I mean, you know, we've had a lot of it with um, the the election of Trump and just this view that interest rates may be rising. That's been enough to see some really strong performance in that sector. Uh, But they, but, the sector still looks cheap because there is so much which is bad about it. So yeah. it's kind of, there's a classic con- kind of contrarian situation there. And also the life assur- insurance companies are doing very well thanks to the um, rising bond yields because they're kind of almost forced buyers of bonds. And they, and they, lock, they lock those, those um, yields in and hold to maturity. So the fact they're locking in more attractive yields well, it's, it's, it should be very beneficial. Well, many of them used as, as proxy bonds themselves. I mean, they're, well, they're, not, well, not not on the same se- sense as a utility. Yeah, not not, in, not I mean, and that's important because people because we've seen some of those parts of the market suffer. Um, and Cristillo is talking about defensives, yes. um, in, um, and also the relationship between defensives and um, bond yields in the magazine also this week. Yep. and saying it's actually quite weak. And um, although there is a there is a positive relationship, but some areas like you know the tobacco stocks and. Um, Places like that where people have been going for yields, suddenly people are thinking, really, do we do I want to hold a stock like this if that I can get, you know, the safe yield, the government yield, um, uh, you know, I can lock that in and it's going to be more attractive in the future. They're interesting dynamics yeah, developing. Yeah, but- and who knows if it's a trend also. That's the thing, though, with this screen. The st- screen is looking to momentum to try and latch onto a trend. And sometimes, I mean, yeah, more, I think probably more often than not, because in the ac- academic literature suggests momentum really does work. But um, it's not always going to actually spot a sustainable trend. Sometimes it can just highlight a trend that has been running up till now, just at the point when it's about to drop off, which we should remember. Oh, yes, yes. And, There's plenty of academics who excel in sort of uh, <laughs> the retrospective, you know. Well, no, we're talking about share prices. So oh, okay. Talk, so, the yeah. academics have been looking at share prices rather than the, the, these aren't the academics actually identifying the trend. They're le- leaving it to the markets. And then, then the other, the, uh, well, the other, the other theme that um, 
the screen seems to identify, not to go on about this too much, but um, it's just um, in general, it's looking like value, those classic value sectors uh, um, actually looking very attractive, which um, kind of feeds into a feature that I wrote um, last month, I think it was now, just on whether um, after 10 years of underperformance during this kind of period when we've seen all this extreme monetary policy to try and sort the economy out, uh, that, that over those 10, 10 years, values really underperformed growth, which historically hasn't been the case, whether value could come back. And I, I'd, I'd say, you know, th- this screen kind of has tentative signs suggesting that story could play out. I mean, you know, again, who knows, you know, themes come and go fairly quickly sometimes, but sometimes they arrive and it's a big long-term trend. Well, it's interesting, actually, because we've got our Christmas uh, bumper issue coming up uh, where there'll be a review of uh, the sectors for 2017. So I'm sure if our readers uh, take that in conjunction with uh, your stock screen, they'll be uh, better off through next year and beyond. Well, that's that's always our hope. That's always (laughs) our hope and our expectation. Elsewhere in the magazine magazine this week, the cover feature is written by our man in Palermo, Daniel Liberto, who's looking at uh, the right time to buy into companies who are having uh, rights issues. Elsewhere, uh, Philip Ryland uh, has taken a look at Norway's uh, state pension fund and the way that it's run, and if there's any lessons for the UK PLC. I doubt that very much, but you never know. And uh, also, uh, in this week's Sector Focus, actually, I penned this week's Sector Focus, and I was just uh, spinning it on um, the comments by uh, Bavaria's uh, finance uh, minister, or chief economic minister, uh, that uh, Brexit poses a danger to uh, Germany's uh, car making industry and uh, what political ramifications that might have given she's or her party's a member of the ruling Merkel coalition in Berlin. But uh, all that will play out in the weeks and months ahead. Thank you very much, gentlemen. And uh, until next week, when I dare say our sainted editor will be back in charge, it's goodbye from me. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.